Yes, guys, welcome back to the Real Life Curriculum Podcast. And today we're joined by Aoni and Dilesh. Um, if you both kindly like introduce yourself a bit, a little about you both. We'll start with Aoni, if that's all right. Oh, hi, I'm Aoni. I'm 39 years... Well, I'm going to be 39, actually. I'm aging myself now. <laughs> I'm going to be 39 years old. I'm a mother of three. Um, yeah. And Dilesh? Dilesh, um, I'm a recovery worker. I'm actually Aoni's um, recovery worker at Turning Point. Also run the infamous warehouse gym as well, so got a lot of love information to talk about and share. Come here, it like our old song. Feel it like our old song. Can't rest, can't rest, won't rest. Believing in the process. Every day's a progress. Slow steps. I need my own clothes next. Love that one. Um, so yeah, just to start off then, Arnie, because like you reached out to the page and said, yeah. would we be interested in to do a podcast on this? And like, for me personally it just resonated with me like of certain a certain situation in my life like family and wise so like I think it's very important that like your story comes like is heard and like spoke about and I feel you were speaking about like certain stigmas around like your situation so do you want to go into that a little bit just like what you meant by that yeah so I as I said to you um I was sexually abused uh, from the age of five to the age of eight um as a sexual abuse victim, you would think that I would be seen as the victim, but that's, that wasn't the case. I come from an Asian community. And usually within the Asian community, a victim is very much victimized. In terms of sexual abuse, you are very much told to hush up, silence, move on, because of this need for a picture-perfect sort of image. Um, it's almost like the, the perpetrators are enabled. And they you know, just carry on with their life as normal. And it was almost like I felt quite victimised and I felt a lot of shame and I was meant to made to feel quite ashamed of that. And that led into, you know, I, was, I experienced DV. And again, that's another thing where the victim is made to feel ashamed of the situation. It must have been you, it must have been something you did. Well, no, actually, it was nothing I did. But, but that isn't the way that it's approached. And then eventually, obviously, why I'm here. <clears throat> is I went down the path of alcohol addiction. As an addict, there is nothing but shame and stigma. You know, there isn't any empathising, there's no compassion. Usually they don't really want to know your story. I, you know, there's loads of things said about me, like, um, Annie loves getting drunk. She just, she just loves going out and getting drunk. You know, there's another side to the story as well, in terms of, I think on the one hand, I was trying to numb my pain with the alcohol, but also at that time, because I'd never had... Um, I guess from a child, I'd, I'd never... I had this void where love was concerned, you know? And the only time that me and my ex-partner, the, the kid's dad, we were equal. So he was, it was quite an abusive relationship, but the only time we were equal is when we would have sex. That was the only time when I was his equal. So now I've associated sex with love, right? So I've come out of that relationship, gone down the road of alcoholism, but I've also given myself quite freely... You know, and it's not because I liked um, sleeping around or sex. It was, it was purely to feel love in that moment. But obviously, to the outside world, it seems like, oh, she just loves getting drunk. She loves going out. She loves sleeping with different guys. And those were the stigmas that were attached to me. This party girl who likes to go hard, likes to sleep about. And that was about it, really. That's, yeah. So going back to, like, you said you were um, sexually abused, like, so young. So what was life like growing up then? So I disclosed when I was 13, um, and this uncle is on my dad's side, but an aunt on my mum's side is married to this uncle, so you can see how the two families are joint. 
So when I initially came out with it, um, ironically, no one disbelieved me. Everybody believed me. To me, that says something. No one said, Annie, you're lying. But it was almost the case of, okay, my aunt's married to him now, she's got kids, and the focus is almost her. And it was about, this has happened to you, Annie, and we believe you, but you need to be quiet and you need to just carry on. I was still made to talk to him. My, my parents still talked to him. I don't know whether they felt obligated to talk to him or societal, you know, societal pressures to talk to him or whether it was just something that they felt they should do. I don't know. But, you know, and, and those things started to make me think to myself, OK, if everyone's all right with him, then it must be me. You know, I couldn't be around him. And when I was around him, I remember one time we were at a wedding and my aunt brought him and I, my body literally went into shock. I started shaking and crying. I, something I couldn't control. My body was doing it on its own. So now they've had to timetable it as in. So when my grand's had a function or something, she's had to timetable when my aunt and him can come and when I can come. And it was almost like I was made out to be the problem. My dad's side of the family stopped talking to us completely, you know. And so I started to believe that actually <clears throat> I must be the reason why this happened, you know. I, it must be because of me, I'm dirty. And I went through, like, anorexia. I went through numerous suicide attempts. It, and it, that, you know, that sort of... Aoni is the problem. It didn't stop until I came out of rehab because I made it stop then. So just with, like, the rehab, so is that where, like, you two met then? Is it through that, like... Yes, so I met Aoni, first time I met her, drunk, absolutely Mm. paralytic. When she talks about her emotions and how she was being drunk, that's how I seen her. And I seen her and she turned up with her mum. And one of the things she talks about is her relationship with the outside family and her mum and everybody, but her mum was so persistent with getting Aoni help. Her mum literally brought her along. Her mum made sure she come to the assessment sat, sat, assessment, sat down, and then we started working. And I've always been, I've been doing a lot of stuff within addiction, and I'm always a big believer in let's try to give you positive things in your life to work with. Let's try to find things that you can release your natural endorphins with. But with Aoni, it was just one of them that we just couldn't find that thing. We just couldn't find the source because there was so much trauma related to her story. Like even when she did come, even when she did turn up where she wasn't that drunk, and you think you get somewhere, the next appointment she comes up and she's paralytic, falling all over the floor, got bruises on her face because she had an alcoholic seizure. But Annie was alcohol dependent. And when we talk about alcohol dependence, she had to have alcohol to survive. So she couldn't go a day without having alcohol. And that's when it sort of, we were just trying, we tried multiple different things. And that's when it was like, when she started talking to me about the trauma, the stuff that was going on with sexual abuse, physical abuse, and also not seeing her kids as much. That's when it was like, you need, you need intensive rehab, you need detox, you need rehab, and you need somewhere you can go medically and somewhere where you can go away from the community because this physically can't be done at home because of all of that that was going in the background in her life. And that's when we started working and, and, and we started putting the work in and, and I only got called into rehab a lot sooner than, than expected. I, I was saying to her at that stage, you're not ready for this, you're not ready yet, wait, wait, wait. But she got, she got the phone call when I was on annual leave and she literally just up and gone. Yeah. On the Monday um, when you got back, he's found out I've gone to detox and he's like, what, she's not ready. But I'm already there, right? Were you ready? Do you know what? I wasn't. I'm not going to lie to you. I wasn't even expecting that call. It was, it was when COVID, COVID first hit. 
So like the, when the lockdown was first sort of happening. Okay. And I'd literally had the children, because um, during my addiction, um, especially when my addiction got quite bad, there would be two, three months I wouldn't see my kids. Frank, just because I was so intoxicated most of the time. But when I would see my kids, this just happened to be an occasion where I did see my children. So I'd literally drop the kids back to their dads, come home, phones rang, one's like someone's on the phone for you. It was a detox unit. They were like, we've got, we've got beds spared. Do you want to come in next week, Monday or Tuesday, I think it was? I was like, yeah. I wasn't ready. And I don't know why I said yeah, but I just did. I was like, yeah. What was it like going there then for the first time? <laughs> Do you know what? I wasn't actually too... I wasn't too concerned about going detox because it was nine days. It was in Nottingham. Because um, I went during COVID. Usually they had the men and the women's um, living dorm separate. Because it was COVID, they had it all together. Mm. So there was me, this other lady, and two other guys. There was only four of us in there. I mean, they fed you to death in there. And I was um, medically detoxed, so I was put on Librium. So the day I went in there, um, I went there, obviously... I, I drank quite a bit, but I wasn't drunk. And the first thing he said to me when when we started to assess me was like, we couldn't believe how high you blew. Because if I'd seen you on the street, I didn't know you, you just looked normal. Really, yeah? Yeah, literally. Because my alcohol intake at its worst was a litre and a half of raw vodka. That's what I used every, to drink every, every day. Every day. Every yeah, day. Yeah. Sometimes two litres, but a litre and a half. And the, I, I only got weaned down to 70 CL. So I was drinking 70 CL Was that straight vodka. straight vodka or just like... No, initially it was straight, but then um, when Stilla started working with me, yeah. I had to start mixing it. So at the beginning, I was mixing it myself, mixing it to stabilise myself. Was I hell? I was an addict. Yeah. I was drinking to a paralytic. So the one decision I made was I told my dad to pull my units. So I had to have a certain number of units so I could stabilise myself. If I didn't have them, my legs would go, I would start shaking, and I mean vigorously shaking. I've had seizures and stuff before. So I'd have to drink to stabilise, and so my dad would do that for me. But from a litre and a half, I got down to 70CL, and that was the lowest I could get down. So when you go in there, and by the evening, because I hadn't had alcohol all day, I started to withdraw, and that's when they started putting you on the Librium. And it was great. Don't get me wrong, I had a great time in there, you know. When I come out of detox, I thought to myself, I don't need to go rehab. Because now I wasn't withdrawing. You'd done a little bit of recovery talk in there, but I felt I felt fantastic, mm. you know. And in my head, I'm thinking, I can just go home. Looking back now, I left the detox unit not drinking, but I still had the addict mindset. I entered rehab mm. with the addict mindset. Because when I initially entered rehab, and, you know, my uh, decision was to, I was going to control drink. There was no way I was n not going to have alcohol in my life. I couldn't even fathom it. Like, a life without alcohol, what the hell? No. So I was like, okay, I'm going to come out of here. My, my goal is to control drink. So obviously, when you're going to rehab, that isn't the goal. In rehab, it's complete quit, recovery, complete, right? Yeah. So they're talking to you about recovery, and you're going to give up. And I was like, yeah, 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 that's what I want to do. But I didn't. And now again, looking back, I can see how I had the addict mindset. Again, I was manipulating. I was lying. Do you know what I mean? I still had that very deceit, deceitful mindset, which you do as, as an addict. So you know with like how you said you was like drinking like a litre and a half a day? Yeah. So like you said your mindset in there wasn't to come out and completely stop. It was just to control it. So what did, in your head at that time, what would controlling it mean? Like what, how different would it have been from when you first went in? No, so I've I've not come. I didn't come out of rehab controlling it. I came out of rehab completely 
stopping alcohol. I've been alcohol free for three years now. Okay, so something happened in rehab halfway through rehab where I realised. And this is where again, the, the part of the rehab. So we have rehabs at turning point. We have multiple different rehabs, and. For me, I was working closely with a lot of rehab teams, but I had to make sure the rehab that was found, found it was a specialised, female-only, trauma-informed practice. It wasn't just about addiction. It wasn't just about how to cope with, how to avoid having drink, how to cope with the cravings. It was mainly, because that's what it all stemmed down to. Like, Annie's addiction wasn't down to she just enjoyed drinking. It was down to trauma. Mm. It was all down to the trauma she suffered. She went to the Nelson Trust and they worked deeply within the trauma. And I think when they started to work within the trauma and talk to Annie and open up, and I think that's when it naturally started to come about that actually she's now explored all these things that she's had it hidden down here under, what she avoided to drink with. Now that she's been able to explore them, she can then progress with the next stage of her life. And that was to potentially go, well, to go alcohol free. With, yeah. with going in there, she had the mind of, yeah, I'm not going to stop drinking until she actually stopped drinking and realised how much better life was. And now she's actually also started exploring the traumas. Yeah. So, so what was like a day-to-day life? What was day-to-day life like in rehab then? What did it consist so basically, of? Basically, it goes, rehab runs from Sunday to Saturday. That's how the weeks go. And so Monday to Friday consists of you getting up. So what for one week, I'll be on a chore for cleaning certain part of the house. Okay. Um, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So my, my rehab was a cottage in the Cotswolds. That's what it was. Really? If you walked past it, you'd just think it was a cottage. It was a trauma-informed rehab, so it had no locks on the doors. It had no cameras. It literally had a river running through the front and back garden, and ducks used to come in the garden every single day, you know. Um, and there was eight of us, well, nine of us, including myself, in that house. So from Monday to Friday, I would be responsible for cleaning a certain part of the, the rehab, so to say it was bathrooms, yeah? So I'd get up in the morning, about six o'clock, I would clean the bathrooms, I'd get ready, I'd be downstairs at the table for eight o'clock in the morning, would have a morning check-in. So just basically going around, seeing how everyone feels. And then we'd read from certain books, um, just for today, and uh, there was a inner child book and a few other books. And then we'd have like a half an hour break, and at nine o'clock in the morning, that's when groups start. From nine till five or four o'clock, we'd have groups. So the groups are centered around trauma, um, boundaries, self-esteem, um, sex and sexual relationships, uh, relationships and violence, um, uh, relationships with you. And so there's a lot of work between your relationships between you and your mom, you and your children, you and your partner or ex-partner. There's a lot of all the all the workshops were like based around that. Then at four o'clock, someone would be on cooking duties. So that's worked out on a Sunday. So two of you are cooking per day. So whoever's cooking would get on with the cooking and the rest of the people could just have time to chill. Or apart from the group work that you do, you also get set three assignments every three weeks that are specific to you, that are specific to whatever it is you're going through or whatever it is that, that you need to explore and you need to heal from. So... You know, I, I did uh, quite a lot of those. I, I was meant to do like um, 12 and I ended up doing 24 to the point where, I mean, Dilesh had all about this. Well, they said to me, we're not giving you no more because like, you're exhausted. And I said, if you're not giving me more, I'm going. Like, what am I here for? I'm not here to have a good time. Mm. Give me an assignment. You wanted the more assignments. For me, 
my healing and my therapy was those assignments because although the group work was great, those assignments, because they were so specific to the stuff that related to me, um, I found that they were the most therapeutic. I spent hours looking within myself trying to answer these questions. Sometimes it'd just be one sentence. Like, I remember one very clearly. If your anger had words, what would it say? And I managed to write like a five-page assignment on what my anger would say if it had words. That's how much anger I had within me. And I didn't even know. Mm -hmm. I knew there was anger, but I didn't know to what extent. And these assignments allowed me to explore the sources of, of these feelings that I had these very uncomfortable feelings that I was trying to run away from with the with the alcohol, you know. Um, there's only one one assignment that I never did, and that was the inner child assignment, which we figured out I need more therapy for because I just never I was never able to go there when I was in rehab. But that's that's basically what what it consists of. And what was that turning point in rehab that you spoke about? So basically, in rehab, as well as doing the work around the you know the traumas. You do work around facing who you've become in addiction, you know. Um, like, I, like, I had this side of me that was very much in pain. I was hurting. There was a lot of anger within me. There was a lot of open wounds. And that was the reason I was drinking. But the only I'd become whilst drinking, or in addiction, should I say, I became really manipulative. I became sly. I became a liar became a thief I became I became somebody I was capable of doing things that I didn't even realize I was capable of doing but the one thing that made me really think was we did a, a group around our children and obviously I'd been drinking to numb myself on the traumas inflicted on me but in this particular group I learned that now I was causing trauma to my children now I was traumatizing my kids. Now essentially I'd become the abuser, not intentionally, but abuser nonetheless. That's something that had never, that never occurred to me before. It had never occurred to me because in addiction, you become so selfish. You become so tunnel visioned. It's you, your problems and the substance. It's like a vicious circle. That now that the alcohol had gone away and I've started to explore, now as well as explore, I can see that, oh my God, like I'm causing trauma to my kids. Like, I'm an abuser now. What the, like, that was a really hard pill to swallow. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And that sat with me for a long time. And it got me to reflect and really accept and take accountability for who I'd become. And then I had a choice to make. Did I want to come out of rehab and continue drinking, control drinking, which I knew by that stage I was never capable of doing? Or was I going to come out of rehab and start my life again without the alcohol? And that's when I made the decision that I didn't want to be that person anymore and I wasn't going to drink anymore. And this is this is what brought tear to my eye on Saturday. So we was at an event on Saturday where she's in a film in Frymg. It's a documentary about the addic uh, somebody's addiction and how it is. And at the Q&A, they were talking to her and she was talking about her, her children. And bear in mind, I've seen her children from the start and to now. And to actually see the change of behaviours and see the life and the, the difference her life has made on her children just that alone, her three kids, it's absolutely amazing to see. So this person that was walking into an office three, three and a half years ago, that was falling all over the place, slurring her words, would turn up with bruises, would, it was just all over the place. Couldn't then actually now sit in there with her three kids, and her kids are not young, and her kids are not babies, 
And actually seeing all the three kids grow and develop and grow with her. And actually, when she says to me that, my, my, do- my old, oldest daughter thought, I was just waiting for you to die. Uh, and they're the emotions that, as, a, as somebody who's worked with her through the journey, it's like, this is what I do, why, why, this is why I do what I do. Mm. It's because it makes, there is no better sense of achievement than just watching somebody go from that phase and to grow in and to develop it and becoming some how she has yeah. to being able to be successful in life and I, don't, I, I don't think that when you look at millionaires and all these people making millions and millions I don't think there's anything else that can make you happier than something like that and I advise that's for anybody to do just go out there and work with somebody who's struggling and just watch your growth in that person and see how happy that makes you and that's that's why I love what I love doing what I do just seeing the growth in people so what was the like main difference you've seen for example, when you first met Aoni and like when, like let's say the first time you seen her after rehab? So I think, um, first of all, she wasn't drunk. She wasn't under the influence of alcohol. The skin, the complexion of how her skin tone changed, that was noticeable straight away. And you could tell she'd been eating. You mm. could tell that she'd come out there and she looked healthy. The difference from going prior to rehab was Everything was all over the place. Her emotions, she was crying all the time. She could actually hold a stable conversation for an hour. Whereas when she was drinking, she couldn't, couldn't go through 30 minutes of a conversation without breaking down and crying or doing something just really off the cuff. But yeah, it was just great to actually see that she had skin tone. Skin. She actually, she looked Indian. She looked, she looked Indian. <laughs> you looked your tone, and then, and then just saw that communication. It was just there. Yeah, there was just so much. And I think, I think I was waiting for a confirmation from DMU, wasn't I? Yeah. At that stage, I'd applied to go back to do my degree. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. I remember it, dear Robert. Yeah, and the, yeah, and it was just I, I and I sort of I met her to sort of look at where her next recovery journey was going to be. Sort of like let's keep going, let's just not give up. Let's go to Dear Albert, which is the aftercare providers, which help with people that are in recovery. And she was like, nope, I've made my mind up. I'm going uni. And mm-hmm. since then, it's graduated and doing another course. And she just since then she just smashed the hell out of life. So which is I was going to ask if there's something like you. Uh, you helped her with or did you implement something to kind of um, distract your addiction when you came out like exercise or something like that or was it no I've never been one for the exercise although I should I should do it but no I think for me like Dilesh I don't remember a lot of my conversations or or going to see Dilesh I know you had me in quite a bit Mm. when I was in active addiction but I don't I remember like little snippets of it but one thing he said to me was everything that I said to him that I was going to do, that I wanted to do when I was drunk, is everything I'm doing. No. Yeah, and I don't remember even saying it to him. I don't remember telling him I wanted to go back to uni. Yeah, I've done it. And there's a few other things I've said take to you. He t- said you wanted to take your daughter to Iceland. Yeah, that's already booked. So, so I've taken, you know, the first, last year I took the kids away to Turkey and it was just all these things which I don't remember saying. Mm. But I think for me, I had a lot of, I'd kind of been so inconsistent. Before rehab, I had been very inconsistent. I was never I was never plateaued. I was either up there or down there. So you can imagine, when I'm up here, I'm making all sorts of decisions and choices. And then the next day, I'm down there. So I stopped doing what I'm doing the day before or decided to do the day before, and now I'm doing different things. And it kind of went like that. So nothing ever got finished. 
And one of the things that never got finished was my degree. So when I was in rehab, and when I, as I was writing my assignments, um, and you have to read the assignments aloud and then they're reading through them. So I'm like, Annie, you're very artic- articulated. Like, you know, you, you're quite intelligent. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, I went to uni and they're like, well, why don't you go back if I thought about going back? I thought I have done, but I kind of just thought that's dead now. Well, anyway, one of the workers ordered me a DMU um, prospectus to the rehab. And um, she's look, we're looking through it. She's like, what degree did you do? She's like, I think you should go back and finish it. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, when you get out of here, go back and finish it. So when I left rehab, I decided that I was going to go back and finish it. And to be honest with you, my recovery has really been academia. I don't, I don't do any, I don't do any of the mutual aid groups. Not that they don't, they work for some people, they didn't work for me. Going to Dear Albert and stuff like that, that was great. But I found that a lot of the, not that there's a hierarchy in recovery, there isn't, but it was almost like, because I'd been to rehab, I'd done so much work in such a short space of time, that a lot of addicts or in recovery that haven't been to rehab, they haven't done as much work as, as I had done. So I didn't feel like I kind of fit in there. So what I started to do was I started to use my Facebook page as almost my blogging. Like, I think for about six months, no one... Because I, I used to be really active on Facebook. You can imagine an active addiction, like all the kind of crap I'm posting. Do you know what I mean? I look back at it and think, what the hell? So and then I've disappeared one day for like four months and I've come back. Um, and I, for six months, I didn't say anything. And then one day, I decided to out myself. I literally put a status up on my Facebook, Lester Smore. I'm known as this party girl who likes to get, you know, about, about my alcohol addiction and where I've been. And literally, my Facebook has been, been, been like my journaling place ever since. So for me, it's been studying. And I think studying was, with education, I was able to prove myself to myself. It was almost like I'd been told all my life how I wasn't worthy, how I wasn't intelligent, intelligent enough, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't all these things. And then through education, I know it sounds funny, but like I, I proved my worth to myself by hitting these grades or these achievements that I've made. And then, yeah, Facebook is where I really do a lot of my blogging. Do you still do that now? Yeah. I put up a post um, on Friday, Friday evening, I think. And I get a lot of people that follow my story because, like I said, Leicester's small. Yeah. People, people have known me and now they have a whole different perception of me. Now I'm not, I, now my whole, I've got a whole different reputation now. Do people reach out to you? A lot of people reach out to me. I'm yeah. respected now. That's crazy. And, and Alney actually now runs the re, pre-rehab group for Turning Point. Oh, really? So anyone going to rehab, this is a, just a, a madness to see that anyone going to rehab or before they go to rehab, they have to have three sessions with Alney. Four. Four sessions with Alney. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so which... Yeah, I deliver them on my end as well. So it's, it's her cycle of, like, giving back. Yeah. And she comes back and, like... Most people, that's before they get funding for rehab and that's before the cycle continues. So she's just giving back and she's now providing that source to, to give back to other people that need help. And like even when, we, we, we say quite a lot, don't we, about um, like addiction doesn't discriminate. No. We sort of say saying like, doesn't matter what colour you are, what background you are, how smart you are, how rich you are, whatever you are, it just does not discriminate. And Aoni sees it now on a daily, on a, on a weekly basis when she's running this group that every walk of life comes through that pre-rehab group and comes goes through the work that Aoni set preparing them for rehab. And you didn't have that. I wasn't in a stable condition. Like, Dilesh did try to get me to go to groups because obviously in rehab, you, you work in groups all the time. 
But I have the utmost respect for these people that can turn up to my group week in, week out. Because I, cause you used to, I was just not stable enough. I was either like off my rocker or just not in a place to... So, no, I never did that, any of that. I kind of just like decided one day I was just at home the next day before Delesh knew it, I was in detox unit. And he had to sort out my rehab real, real quick. Mm. They nearly messed it up for me, man. I had to run around and make sure they had a spare bed because you went in detox too early. Did you come out of detox and <laughs> gone to yeah. rehab the same day. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it flows. Were you in it in lockdown then? Was that when it was? Or? Yeah. So I went into the detox unit on the 7th of April, 2020. And then I, end, I left on the 16th or the 17th of April, 2020. And that's the same day I entered rehab. And I left rehab on the 31st of July, 2020. The Real Life Curriculum Podcast is now sponsored by Herbalist Hut. Herbalist Hut is an online store that offers 100% high-quality organic products. All of the products are ranging from Dr. Mossimos to skincare and everything health-related. They are specifically designed to improve your well-being and your health care. In addition to this, they also offer one-to-one consultations that are done by the CEO and founder. If you'd like to find out more, just go down to the Instagram page at Herbalist Hut or go on the website Herbalist Hut. .co.uk. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Yeah. It was mad. There, weren't like, there wasn't like any like, you didn't have any cravings during lockdown period or anything like no. that at all, no. Because obviously people were by themselves and so, I don't know, were you by yourselves in, in lockdown? In, no, so when the lockdown initially hit, because it was in May, wasn't it? March. Was it March? Yeah, like March yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah I th- well I was sort of controlled, uh, stabilising at that point. But by April, 7th of April, I'd gone to detox and I didn't come out of rehab till the 31st of July, which is pretty much the same time that the the, the lockdown rules had sort of lightened in Leicester by yeah. that point. But if you're asking, have I had any cravings for alcohol? Is yeah. that what you're asking? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know what? And this is not even a lie. Mm. I haven't. And that is that is the truth. You know, um, like... And this is another reason why I didn't. I got, I came off a lot of these groups because when I joined a lot of these groups online and stuff, there was a lot of talk about um, people in recovery how they found dif- recovery difficult, how they were craving, how recovery is hard work, and I just felt that like I wasn't there. Mm. Like that's not my recovery. I have struggled a lot. I've struggled a lot with my mindset and I've struggled a lot with my thoughts, but I haven't struggled. There's no wood, but touch wood with my. With craving for alcohol, no, not yet. Don't get it anyway. twisted. Every time she'd be in a picture where she'd be in a pub or she'd yeah. be in a club or she'd be in a bar with the sisters, I was zooming into them pictures to make sure <laughs> I had in hand. So do not get that twisted. Like I was there zooming in to see what. Oh, it's it's a coke. It's cool. It's it's cool. You're right. But yeah, I, I was I was always concerned. Yeah. I was always concerned because we had a good, good relationship after leaving rehab. Mm. And I was all I'm, I'm I'm not no more. I don't have no worries no more to think is Annie going to drink. No, probably not. But from when she first left, I was, how long is this really going to last? Really, yeah. But yeah, she's, she's, she keeps proving me wrong, proving everyone. My kids were the same. Like when my mum picked me up from rehab, I hadn't told them that I decided I was not going to drink anymore. Because mm. it is a choice. Mm-hmm. Recovery is a choice. Uh, the other choice is to obviously keep around drinking and dying, but that's a choice as well, you know. And so I was like, no, I don't drink anymore. She went, what? And I goes, I don't drink anymore. No, she's obviously thinking now and she's just talking a load of waffle. And then obviously my kids as well. Like, mum don't drink. They're like, no, it's not going to last. July goes, August goes, September goes, October goes. I'm in uni now in October. December, the first Christmas is gone and I've not drank. Then you're coming on the year. Obviously now it's just like, yeah, she's, she's fine. Because no. my whole family drink. 
So a week after I came out of rehab was my sister's baby shower and there was going to be alcohol there. I had to adapt to life quite quickly mm. with um, having alcohol around. And not wanting to have it. And not wanting to have it. So even that soon, like, you didn't even feel like... No, and I was, and I was, I was literally dreading this baby shower because I didn't know how it was going to go. Mm. And I remember messaging, I don't know if it was Dilesh or whether it was um, one of the staff at the rehab, and I was like, I'm, I'm a bit worried. And she went, what are you worried about? I went, relapsing. She went, yeah, but how are you going to relapse? I went, well, if I drink. She went, who's going to pick up the drink? I went, me. She goes, if you, so if you don't pick up, what's going to happen? I ain't going to relapse. She went, there you go then. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what am I worried about? It's, it's all in me, right? I've got to, I choose to pick up the drink or I choose yeah. not to pick up the drink. What the hell am I worried about? It's all in my hands. And literally, that's how I've taken it. I've, people say to me, oh, Annie, you can't drink anymore. I say, no. No one's told me I can't drink. I choose not to. There's a difference. I find that empowering because I'm addicted to alcohol and I choose not to drink. I find it empowering that although everyone drinks around me, I can be in this stage where I remember where alcohol takes me. I remember the, the, the sorrow that it brings my children and my family and I can stand there and be all right with everyone drinking because I don't want to go back to that. Yeah. I find that very empowering. And again, we talk about like recovery. You don't recover from recovery. There isn't, oh, I'm, a, I'm an addict and now I'm recovered. Like you're always in recovery, you're in recovery for the rest of your life because your standard behaviours are your standard behaviours. You're trying to escape them behaviours because throughout Annie's life, she's known if, if I have a shit day, I go and get a drink. Yeah. If I had a good day, I'll go and get a drink. If I'm feeling, feeling pissed off, I go and get a drink. So everything she's doing in recovery, it's about how to avoid that. It's all become slightly more natural now. You don't have to think as hard as, hard as that anymore. Mm. But it's when you get to that stage where you think I'm fixed, I'm every, everything's fine now. And that's when concerns start to happen. That's when you start slipping up because you think you've overcome an addiction and you just can't overcome addiction. Yeah. You have to be in recovery for the rest of your life. What was your like reasons for like keeping a relationship with Arnie like when she left? Because um, we didn't have a good relationship before. Really? We had a, <laughs> it was my recovery worker, but I did a hell of things. Ask <laughs> <laughs> it. What? Um, like what? Yeah, <laughs> I just I think I think the, the best experiment was she I thought was going to be a great experiment because her mum was getting support from the family and carers worker, mm. and I was working with Arnie, and both of us two would would talk about what was going on, and you could just see the chaos behind the background. So I thought, let's pe- put them in a room both together. Both of them more or less had a fight in the in front of me, her and her mum just arguing and shouting and screaming, and then, but yeah, there was just a lot. But for me, going back to the question, um, I think I met her to just support her with the recovery, and then when I met her and then realised she was going back to university, and then we just become really close from that moment where we met dear Albert, we started talking, and you was really thankful, and then from there it was just. I, I thought that this person still needs more help, still needs more support. She doesn't want to go to the recovery groups. She's going to university, still needs to wait. I'm not prepared to let you go. And I just kept working and kept getting her to come in to see me. And from then we just built, built a, a really good friendship. And I say it's not I'm her recovery anymore, a recovery worker anymore. I'm her friend, a, a very good fam- family friend, like a close friend. Yeah. Like anything she needs, she'll... She can call me and I'll be, I'll be there for her and, and it's vice versa. 
Is uh, that the same with like other people you've helped as well, or is it mainly with Arnie? Um, so there's only Arnie. Yeah. There is only Arnie. There's a few others that I still keep in contact. A lot of others that I keep in contact with, but yeah. the relationship that we've built and what we're doing, I think the actual her then doing work alongside me, her being working with Turning Point, that's just been a part of the consistent of her development. Yeah. So I just want to see her keep growing. Yeah. And like I say, she's she mentioned before I get multiple voice notes. Like even though. When she talks about her her addiction, she left re what what age did you re leave rehab? Oh, I, I forgot now. But it was thirty seven, I think. Say thirty seven, but when she left rehab, she still had the behaviours of sixteen year old. Mm. She still needed to develop it. Well, like she just left school again. She's learning to deal with her emotions. Like some of the voice notes I get from her nowadays, and, and I like to just reflect back on real life practice. I'm like, okay, is this? If you if this person's had a go at you on Facebook because of your post, they didn't like it. If you react to them and respond to them, what what benefits are it going to make for you? Is it going to progress your life? Is it going to make your life any better? Is it going to cause you more stress? Or is it any worth responding to it? And it's just been an ongoing ongoing relationship with, with family dynamics a lot with my relationship because I met a really good man and I've never been in a relationship with a really good man. And oh my God, the amount of times I've wanted to run away because just the feelings, the emotions get overwhelming. And Because it was if, that good. If only he knew yeah. how like pinnacle Dilesh has been to our relationship. Really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he kind of knows, doesn't he? But not, doesn't know the full extent. What, your whole background or? No, he knows about my background, but he doesn't yeah. realise how much Dilesh has had to Step guide in. me yeah. through our relationship and hence we're engaged today. Oh, really? And actually, Dilesh has been an important part of that because I have struggled. I have struggled. I've wanted to run away so many times because I've been so scared to open myself up. I've been, you know, I mean, you know, I've just been scared of these intense feelings. I, I've, I've overthink. Oh, this is not going to work out. Dilesh is like, why do you always want to leave? Why do you always want to run away? Mm. Even hey. last week, she's, you do have your engagement party in two weeks. You'd yeah. be engaged in two weeks. And two weeks ago, she's messaging me saying she's ready to leave him. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. oh, don't, hopefully this doesn't go out too loud. <laughs> it's got to go out loud. No, she, two weeks ago, she said she can't wait to get married. No, <laughs> two, two weeks ago, she was like, I don't, I don't think he wants to be with me. I don't think he's here. And I was just like, all right, calm down. Has he said this? No. What makes you think this? Oh, because of this? Well, just relax. It's just that teach her to just deal with them emotions again deal with feelings like again you, you look back and we've spoke about all the trauma that these emotions have been hidden for so so long and they're now starting to arise and she still doesn't know how to respond respond to so many emotions and her her emotion the, the way of responding to emotion beforehand was run or drink mm. and that was it i'd pick up a drink when she feels love pick up a drink when she feels hate pick up a drink and it's the same thing now it's just trying to her to allow only to Okay, feel that emotion and actually ride the wave of the emotion and actually see how it actually feels. And it actually feels quite good at the end of it. Yeah. But you've just got to get that time to understand and allow yourself to feel that emotion, which she's, she's slowly doing. My voice notes are not so long anymore. No, there are, they are actually. They're not as long anymore. Because sometimes it's all day. Yeah. Yeah, all yeah. day. And, and my missus would go mad. <laughs> she wouldn't. But she, I think <laughs> but she'd, she'd be in the background. Yeah, she, she'd hear out. Yeah, she'll hear out his. um Arnie's voice in the background. I'll be in the kitchen cooking and listen to a 25-minute voice now. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it, it's, it is, it's, a, it's a really good relationship and, and it's glad to actually see that 
she keeps progressing. You mm. like, like, I think with so much we haven't touched upon, like where we just touch upon it's like a shock. Oh, getting, get engaged, get engaged, university, children, taking her daughter to Iceland, which she probably, her development just keeps going and going and going and going, moving to Wolverhampton. Like there's just so much that. Have you thought about doing any public speaking to share your story? So I have done podcasts before mm. and I've done, um, I, I've spoken at two different conferences now. The last time I spoke at a conference was at the Alcohol Change Conference because I took part in a piece of research mm. with um, one of the universities. So I, I have done public like speaking, but it's only when I, when I get asked to or people hear about me. And it's not because I'm special, I know that. It's because I'm an Asian female who talks about her addiction and trauma. And although there's loads of, there's millions probably of Aunties out there, mm. there's not many Aunties who have got to the point of speaking. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think to get to this stage, I had to make a decision again. I had to either appease society or I had, I had to think, you know, I don't really care what you think. I'm going to do what, what I'm going to speak out. And so I, I chose the latter and it came with its own problems. But I, I was prepared to take the backlash as well because it comes with backlash. And you have to be prepared for that. Mm. So, yeah, I do get a lot of opportunities to do things. But I think sometimes because I'm because I last year I was at uni um, and I graduated last year. This year I've done my master's. So with education, it, it can get really full on. I'm quite new in recovery. Mm. You know, I'm just sort of getting to know myself. Like Dilesh said, the voice notes ain't as long as anymore. So I've got to know myself a bit yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So I've met someone, I'm getting engaged, the kids are getting older. It's just just keeping everything balanced. I can't, you know, there's so many times I've wanted to, to run before I could walk or crawl. And Dilesh said to me, and he always says it to me, he says, Annie, you want to do this, that, that. And he goes, what, what will happen? He goes, if you just start running, you'll start running and then you'll just collapse. Whereas if you crawl, you start you start jogging. And I forgot now. You can say that. No, I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not jogging. Like. But, but that is a stage of recovery. Like sort of everyone wants to run before they can walk. Mm. And, and the, the process I always say is, first before you even like run and walk, you've got to learn how to crawl. And then when you crawl, you've got to learn how to walk. And then when you walk, you've got to learn how to jog. And then when you jog, you learn how to run. And then you've got to learn how to sprint. But you've got to get to a stage where you can do this all together. And Annie was always wants to get to that stage. She wants to sprint. But if she sprints and she falls, you go way you go back to crawling again. Mm. So it's about going through all of these stages again and just making sure that she can pick up the pace when she needs to pick up the pace and drop the pace when she needs to drop the pace. And it takes time to learn. And, and she's learning that. And I think you asked about public speaking and, uh, and things like that. I think our next venture that we want to do between us is to get a documentary done. Yeah. We want to actually work on working, getting a, a documentary about her trauma, about her journey, which then that can be spread out to everybody. It could be spread out wide, wide as, as possible to actually then do Q&As to actually people to then ask a question. Because again, female, Asian, addiction, mm. trauma. Nobody, this does, this does, how many other people can yeah, talk about true. this? So, but there is, it, it's hidden, it's, it's, it's super hidden in the community. Yeah. Um, and not just in the Asian community, in every community. Um, it's about how Aoni can help again support other people to get support and talk and be open about it. Do you know for you though, Arnie, like, for example, you could have come out of rehab and like, yeah, you, like you've made the decision to stop drinking, but you didn't have to like then help anyone. So why was it that you wanted to like start helping people? I think for me, like Dilesh had, had made such a difference to my life. He'd literally changed, he'd helped me to change my life. He'd helped me to save myself. 
I would, you know, he he did he helped me to give my children back their mother. He'd helped me my my parents to get back their daughter. It was a beautiful gift. And so I thought to myself, what if I can give or I can have a hand in giving that gift to someone else? What if I can help someone save themselves? What if? So I thought, yeah, you know, let me give it let let me give back. L- let me see if if I, you know, if I can even have a little little part to play in someone's journey. And to be honest with you, there is nothing more beautiful. There's no greater gift that I can give in my whole lifetime than when someone comes out of rehab and says to me, thank you, Arnie. Or, or someone reads something. I had someone read something, like loads of my blogging on Facebook, and they said, oh, I was, you know, you really encouraged me to go to rehab and like get the help I needed. There's nothing more beautiful than that. Like that, that, that stuff t- touches me because yeah, I really can't even buy that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, but without, so without like your journey and how it's gone, like the trauma, like the alcoholism, you probably wouldn't help these people or you probably wouldn't have to help them or feel like you needed to. So would you change your life? Do you know what? I've asked myself this question so many times. I think the only thing I regret is is the way that I, you know, the the effect my addiction had on my kids Mm. and on my family. But like you said, if I hadn't had gone through all those things, I wouldn't have become the only I am today. I wouldn't think the way I think. I wouldn't present myself the way I present myself. I wouldn't have empathy to the level that I do. I wouldn't be as compassionate as I am. Even before I went into alcohol addiction, I used to, ironically, I used to work for the Drug and Alcohol Action Team before I went into alcohol addiction. And, you know, I, I, I was always very good at that job. Like, you know, I used to go into the hostels and the sex worker hubs and stuff like that. And I used to find it really easy to engage. And it's because of my traumas and stuff. I already had this level of empathy and compassion within me. Mm. So, no, I wouldn't. So going off that and just to kind of close this podcast, I always ask this question to all of our guests. And I'll ask it to you, Dillish, as well. What's the biggest life lesson you've taken away from your own life? I think the biggest thing for me is it's not over till it's over. While you're still breathing, there's still time to change. If there's things about you you don't like, you can change them. Like, it's it's never too late. That, that and that obviously, my story has, has I've proved that stuff. I've proved that, proven that to myself. Yeah. Powerful. How about you, Dele? Uh, for me, it's about do things you love. Keep doing things that make you happy. Like we're so men in general as well. We could talk directly to men. It's like we're so stuck that we're supposed to get married, we have kids, and then we stop doing the things we like doing. Mm. And then we we don't follow football anymore. We don't go out with the lads to. We don't go and eat certain food. We don't. We we stop all of these things, and then that's when issues start stepping in life. Mm. Believe it. Just keep just keep doing things you love and continue doing that until and just keep adding more and more things you love to your toolbox. To keep you away from things like addiction. Yeah, man. Powerful, man. Thank you both. Yeah, thank, thank you both. You. It's been a pleasure, honestly. Um, big shout out to Leicester Podcast Studio as well for having us on. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe on the YouTube. Thank you, guys. Can't rest, can't rest, won't rest. Believing in the process. Every day's a progress. Slow steps, I need my own clothes next to